We have the festival of Shavuos coming up tomorrow night. It's the anniversary of the most significant event in human history, at least according to Jewish tradition. It's the only time in history where there was a revelation to an entire nation, where God spoke not to individuals, but to an entire um, nation comprised of hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of people. Um, and this is always used as the moment of the founding of the religion. So this is sort of, sort of speak, the punctuation of the Exodus. The Exodus happened only 50 days before Sinai. They leave Egypt, they travel to Sinai, and then they have this momentous revelation at Sinai, Ten Commandments. And what I want to do today, I want to look at, there's a fascinating calculation that Maimonides does based upon all the verses that discuss Sinai in the run-up uh, to Sinai uh, that really, I think, sheds new light on the meaning of this holiday. And really, I would say the most important element of Jewish faith is really found at Sinai and how it's built out of the uh, out of the tapestry of the scripture is very fascinating. Once we're able to create that picture, it really can give us a new outlook on Jewish faith. So I think it's it's very valuable. So I want to start with the run up to Sinai. So Sinai, the Sinai experience is actually repeated twice in the Torah. Uh, you know, they always say you should read the book and not watch the movie. A lot of people like to watch the movie, but in the book, you find really some fascinating insights. Uh, it's repeated twice. It's repeated once in, uh, it's sold over once in the middle of Exodus, and once towards the beginning of Deuteronomy, it's repeated. Uh, and now in Exodus, it appears in chapter 20. Chapter 20 of Exodus is Ten Commandments. But chapter 19 is everything that leads to the Ten Commandments. And there's this curious verse in verse 9 of chapter 19 that really establishes what the purpose of the Sinai experience is. Like, what what is the objective? What's the goal of Ten Commandments? We know the Ten Commandments, how many commandments are there in total? There's more than 600. So what is so auspicious about the Ten Commandments? Why is it so unique? Like, why, why do we make a big, put them on a pedestal? These Ten Commandments are special, and this experience is special. We have so many other mitzvos that aren't part of the Ten Commandments, yet they comprise the corpus of the Torah. So what's special about this event that we're going to celebrate tomorrow night? So in verse 9, uh, page 403, 402 and 403, 402 the Hebrew, 403 the English. Hashem said to Moshe, Behold, I come to you in the thickness of a cloud so that the people will hear as I speak to you and they will also believe in you forever. That's the part of the verse that I want to talk about. So Hashem is telling you, I'm going to speak to you in the thickness of the cloud. And what's the objective? What's the purpose? What's the goal? So that the people will hear as I speak to you. And they will also believe in you forever. So if you watch the movie, it doesn't mention anything but the people hearing in the movies, it doesn't make this point clear. Here, it's the stated objective is not that Moshe gets something. So that the people, the both things, both people will hear as, as I speak to you, and they will also believe in you forever. The objective is the people shall hear when God speaks to Moshe. The way this was uh, once uh, kind of analogized 
is that you have a phone call between two parties, and then there's a third party that's listening in, tapping the phone. So God is going to speak to Moshe, but the people will hear as they speak to you, and that's going to cause a change. They'll believe in you forever. That's the verse. Now, what does that imply? If the objective of Sinai is that they believe in Moshe forever, what does that mean? It means that they, do they believe in him yet or not? They don't believe in him, but now they're going to believe in Moshe. Now, why is it so important for them to believe in Moshe? Because he's going to give them the rest of the Torah. So basically all of Torah, the fact that we have Torah and we know it's from God, how do we know it's from God? Moshe gave it to us. You look at their whole Torah. The Jews don't speak to God. Moshe speaks to God and he tells it to the Jewish people. So the fact that we believe in Moshe, that Moshe is a legitimate prophet, and that is established and verified at Sinai, that means that this event that's going to prove somehow that Moshe is a true prophet, will believe in him forever, that really all of Torah is going to hinge upon that. That's a critical point. And now it kind of, it's kind of coming into focus why Sinai is so critical. Maybe it's not about Ten Commandments, per se. Maybe it's like what it says it is. It doesn't say, so that the people will hear as I give them Ten Commandments. That's not what it says. It says the people will hear that God speak to Moshe, and then they'll believe in Moshe forever, and thus forever includes the duration of the Torah. And even till now, we know, we claim we have a Torah from God because we heard it from Moshe, and we know we have evidence at Sinai that Moshe is a legitimate prophet. But I, I think there's, there's a little bit of a problem here textually. So it says that the Jewish people will believe in Moshe from Sinai on, before Sinai. They didn't believe in Moshe. That's, that's what's implied, at least. However, if we go back to the story that happened beforehand, well, what did Moshe do till then? Moshe orchestrated Ten Commandments. Moshe was there who led the charge that split the sea. Moshe uh, was the one who said there's going to be manna, and suddenly manna came flying from the sky, parachuting uh, TV dinners for everyone, for a nation of millions. Moshe was the one who, when they got to Marah and there's nothing to drink, he takes a, a staff and throws it into the bitter water, it sweetens it. Moshe already has a whole list of accolades prior Ten Commandments. Think about it. Moshe says there's going to be blood. All the, all the water of Egypt turns into blood. That's pretty impressive. Now, that's maybe that's a, a flute, but it happens again and again and again. So why would the people not believe in Moshe before Sinai? That's one question. But another question is that there's an explicit verse after the splitting of the sea in chapter 14, the last verse of chapter 14, Verse 31, on page 374, after they split the sea and the Jews walked in the dry land, the Egyptians follow, the water crashes upon them, there's a spontaneous eruption of song. But before that, it says, Vayiru Amas Hashem, the people feared God, Vayaminu they believed, they had faith in Moshe, and God in Moshe, his, his servant. So already in chapter 14, it's clear, the verse indicates that they do believe in Moshe. Comes along chapter 19, we say, so this is five chapters later, now at Sinai, we're gonna, God's going to speak to you and they'll believe in you. Wait a minute, they already believe in him prior. So what's this idea that we're establishing that Sinai is somehow going to change it? They don't believe in you prior. 
Now they're going to believe in you. Wait a minute. The verse makes it very clear that already at the splitting of the sea, they believed in Moshe. If you want to add another, this is an obvious contradiction. In chapter 14, it says the nation believed. And now at chapter 19, we're saying at Sinai, they're finally going to believe in Moshe. So there's a fascinating section of Maimonides. And Maimonides is kind of, it's in the section called Yisodei HaTorah, Foundations of Torah, where Maimonides is trying to establish what are the ground rules? What are, what are the underpinnings of Torah? What are the foundations of Torah? What are the principles and beliefs upon which all of Torah is built? It's the very first section of the very first book of Maimonides. So he talks about theology. He gives you four chapters in Jewish theology. What we believe vis-a-vis God. What are the core aspects of Jewish faith? Uh, he talks about Kiddush uh, Hashem, which is the objective of Jewish life. And he talks about prophecy. Because if we don't have prophecy, then we don't have Torah. Because prophecy, by definition, means God conveying something to humans. If God doesn't convey anything to humans, we don't have any of his instructions, we don't have any Torah. So in this section, he he builds this model of what it means to have faith in Moshe. And he addresses this point. And essentially what he says is that there's two kinds of faith in a prophecy. There's a faith that they had in chapter 14, and maybe even earlier. They believed that Moshe was legit. They believed he had credentials. They believed he was powerful. They believed he was a prophet. But that's a much lower level of faith. At Sinai... If you look at chapter 19, very critically, you'll notice it says, it doesn't say that they will believe in you. They will forever, they will eternally believe you. There's a different realm of faith in Moshe that was developed at Sinai that wasn't just, they just had emunah, they had faith in Moshe. They had ya'aminu le'olam, they had eternal faith, faith that is unyielding, immutable, incontrovertible, and unshakable faith in Moshe forever. And the Ramam, he spends a whole chapter, Maimonides spends a whole chapter establishing why there is a critical need for Moshe to have this higher level of, us to have this higher level of faith in him. And what are these two kinds of faith? And there's tremendous consequences from the idea that the faith that we have in Moshe is not of this lower level, we believe in Moshe, sure. It's of this higher level, we believe in Moshe forever. Because it really, it really draws out kind of the claim that we have as Jews. And of course, that's manifest at Sinai. So I want to go through some of his calculations. And I know it's a little bit confusing, but I'm trying to, you're trying to just set it out over there, uh, how Maimonides draws from all over Exodus, this idea. Uh, where is the first time that Mount Sinai is mentioned in all of Scripture? Exodus begins with chapter 1 is the Jewish people being enslaved and Moshe being born. Chapter 2 is Moshe has become, becomes an adult and he has his clashes, he has to flee. And chapter 3, Moshe is working for his father-in-law. He's a shepherd and he ends up by a burning bush. It's chapter 3 of Exodus. So it begins, 
he's Moshe is with uh, the Tzon, the uh, the animals of his father-in-law, Yisro, and he arrives Choreva. Choreva means to Chorev. Chorev is a nickname for Sinai. And he gets there and he sees, of course, the burning bush. The bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. And he veers off the path to see what's going on. Why is it not being consumed? And then he has his first prophecy, or at least his first prophecy recorded by the Torah. According to the Midrash, he had prophecy even earlier, but that's not mentioned. And he has a prophecy. He takes off his shoes. The Almighty tells him, take off your shoes because the place that you're standing is his holy land. And he gives him basically a challenge, a directive. I want you to go back to Egypt, the place that you escaped from, and that's it. We're, we're doing redemption. We're going to bring the Jews out. We're going to bring them back to Israel. That's it. We're, we're going to set the gears in motion for redemption. And Moshe begins a series of objections. And there's actually, if you look at it, break it down, there's five distinct objections that Moshe has. And the Almighty has response. So there's a very lengthy dialogue in chapter three, chapter four of, of Exodus. Moshe starts putting up one objective, uh, objection. God responds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But one of the objections, first one, Moshe says, "Who am I to go? How can I take the people out?" And a very quizzical verse, verse twelve. Uh, God says to him, "I will be with you. This is your sign that I have sent you. When you take the people out of the land of Egypt." They will serve God on this mountain. That's referring to Sinai. So the notion of the Jewish people having some sort of transcendental experience at Sinai, way before the Exodus, Moshe is not even in Egypt. God says, as proof of something, Moshe asks the question, God responds, many years, well, many, significant time down the line, the, the people are going to worship me at this mountain. And it doesn't, it seems very out of place. Why are we, Moshe's objection does not seem to be addressed. Moshe's saying, how do I take them out? How, I'm not worthy. They're not worthy. And God suddenly invokes Sinai as if Sinai somehow is in any way relevant. So Maimonides, he, he, he builds this entire framework to understand this whole back and forth dialogue. And then he links it together with the problems of Sinai, uh, of chapter 19 of Sinai, and then he draws out from it very critical ideas for Jewish faith. So let's go through these objections. So first of all, Moshe says, like we said, Moshe says to God, how could I take them out? I'm not worthy. Jews are not worthy. God says, well, they'll come worship me at Sinai. Um, Second objection Moshe has in verse 13, uh, what do I tell them? They ask me, what's his name? What should I tell them? And God gives them a whole lengthy, he gives them a whole mission statement. You should tell them that God, the, the, for their forefathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he says, gather all the elders, tell them the whole plan. Gather all the elders, tell them that Hashem appeared to me, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now my plan is to take you out of Egypt, and I'll take you out of the tormenting of Egypt, the land of Canaan, and it lists all the names of Canaan, the land that flows with milk and honey. They'll listen to you. And you'll eventually uh, face the resistance. Pharaoh's not going to let you go. And but don't worry, I'm going to take you out with an outstretched arm, and I'll hit, I'll smite the Egyptians with all these wonders. And afterwards, they'll send you, and you'll have, you'll borrow all this booty from your neighbors, and you'll leave with great wealth. 
like basically a synopsis of everything that happens. God says, this is your plan. This is what you do. This is your speech. Go ahead and, 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 and do it. And what does Moshe say? A third objection. Vayan Moshe. Moshe responds, Vayomar. They won't believe me. And they won't listen to me. Jews won't accept me. They'll say Hashem didn't appear. They'll say you're a charlatan. That's what they're gonna say. I know the Jews. <laughs> they won't believe me. They'll, they're skeptics. They won't believe me. What do I tell them? So God says to them, "What are you holding in your hand?" He says, "I'm holding a staff. Throw the staff in the ground. Staff turns into a serpent." Moshe f- freaks out. Uh, God tells him, "Okay, grab the tail of the serpent." And hold it, and right away it turns magically back into a staff. And he says, this is your sign. If the people question the fact that you came from God, show them this trick, take your staff and throw it on the ground. Okay, great. And then he tells them again, take your hand, stick it into your shirt. Another trick. Another miracle. Hashem said further, bring your hand to your bosom, so to your chest. So he puts his hand in in his chest, Withdraw, he withdrew it, he withdrew it, and it's leprous. It's like snow. His hand changes colors. He says, stick it back in again, and it's back to the regular flesh. And God tells Moshe, if they don't believe the first trick, they'll believe the second trick. Right? If they don't, and it shall be. This is verse 9. Verse 8, sorry. Uh, it shall be, if they do not believe and not hear your voice to the first sign, then they'll believe the second sign. That's what he tells them. It's an interesting point. It, it, it kind of a, an odd I, statement. Moshe says, the people will believe me. And God says, ah, don't worry. We'll do a trick. You take your, st- your staff, throw it on the ground. Magic. It's now a snake. Right? That's proof. And, okay, one trick. Let me give you another trick, just in case. In case they don't believe you. If they don't believe in the first trick, they'll give you the second trick. What's the second trick? Stick your hand into your shirt. It turns white. Woo! Think about it in, it's back to flesh. If they don't believe you the first one, then they will believe you in the, in the last one. And there's an obvious question here. Clearly, if you need to give him a reason, a, a second trick, a second miracle, a second sign, obviously, the first sign is not enough. People might say, well, I don't know how you do that. How do you turn a staff into a serpent? Maybe it's magic. It's not proof. Clearly, there's a concern that the first one's not enough. So I have to give you a second one. Okay. Well, why is the second one enough? It doesn't make any sense. If there is a concern that the first one's not enough, first of all, what is that concern? And why is that concern not present? Right in verse 8, it really doesn't make any sense. It shall be, if they do not believe you and do not heed the voice of the first sign, which seems to be the sign of throwing of the staff, then they will believe the voice of the latter sign of sticking your hand into your shirt. Why? If they don't believe the first one, they won't believe the second one either. And if they will for sure believe the second one, why is the second one so much better than the first one? Another question. Uh, just quickly round them out here. Moshe says to them, so that's the, the, the third claim has been swatted away. They won't believe you, they will believe you. And not the first, then the latter sign. Fine. Moshe says, again, I, I, well, I'm not, I'm not articulate. Moshe, of course, had a speech impediment. He had a lisp. I'm not articulate. I can't talk. Uh, and God tells him, who makes the mouth to man? It's only Hashem. If I say you could talk, you could talk. Don't worry, it'll be just fine. 
And finally, the last of Moshe's object, uh, objections are, send someone else. I don't want to do it. Send someone else. Now, we know Moshe said, Moshe had an older brother after all, Aaron. Moshe was fearful that Aaron would be offended that his baby brother is going to come and have all the glory. So Moshe saying, don't send me, send Aaron. And God tells him, don't worry about your brother. Your brother will be very happy and he'll help you. He'll be your assistant. And Aaron is someone who has no envy in his heart. He'll see your stature and he'll be very happy for you. In fact, as, a, as an aside, the only person in all of Torah that the Torah testifies has no envy of someone else's success, is totally happy when someone else thrives, is Aaron. The Torah says when Aaron will see you, he'll be happy not in his heart. You know, some people are like, I'm so happy you made it big. And they say that, but really they're like, oh, I'm so envious uh, in, in your heart. Uh, here the Torah is, the Almighty is telling Moshe, Aaron's going to be happy with you in his heart. It's not going to be just on the surface. In his heart of hearts, he's really going to be happy that you're going to be the one to lead it, and even though you're his baby brother. So that's the, that's the picture here. So what Maimonides does here to answer all the questions is as follows. He says that religions are founded on evidence, or at least a claim of evidence. A religion starts because someone claims that God spoke to them and gave them instructions, gave them a certain corpus, and that is mandatory for the adherents, for the constituents, right? So that could be Joseph Smith claims, this, this we know for sure, he claims to have met some angels who gave him golden tablets, which he translated to the Book of Mormons. Here's the law uh, for these people. Muhammad, the same thing, right? Muhammad claims to be a prophet. Whether it's true or not, we could... We could try to assess. And he says, okay, well, here's the Quran. This is the actual content. And then he convinces the people to follow that. Now, so, so there's always a prophet. And the prophet has a claim to or has a, uh, an argument for the claim that they are a prophet. The critical question that we as skeptics should ask is how do we know that this person is telling the truth? And Moshe brought that point again. God, God tells Moshe, I want you to go and tell the people that I spoke to you and that I said, okay, I'm here. I'm the messenger of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of Egypt. Bring it to Israel. Bring it to Canaan. Moshe says, wait a minute. They're not going to believe me. And that's, that's legitimate. Why should they believe you? Maybe you're lying. When someone is making such a claim, there's only two options. Either they're telling the truth or they're not telling the truth. And unless we know otherwise, we should assume that they're not telling the truth. What's their claim? So Maimonides tells us there's really three kinds of claims. There's a claim that is baseless. It's just my word against everyone else's words. I'm Muhammad, let's say, right? No one else experienced, I'm not, I'm not doing any miracles per se. Maybe I am doing miracles, the miracle of the sword, right? But what I'm claiming, and it's based on my integrity. And Joseph Smith, no one's seen those golden tablets. We're, we're trusting him. Mormons are trusting him that he's telling the truth. 
that he really is a prophet, and therefore he's giving them the Book of Mormon, which is really from God. That, that's the claim. Uh, Paul. Uh, Paul is, he, he's claiming that he had prophecy, and now he could abrogate the law and start something new. Like, that is the structure of every religion. Says Maimonides, there's a higher level of verification for prophecy. And that's prophecy based upon a miracle. Someone does a legitimate miracle, he changes the rules of nature. Obviously, he is not bound by nature. That seems to be substantial proof to the legitimacy of their claim. So there's a higher level based upon not just the person's word alone, but based upon some sort of visible, you know, just us, the skeptics, we see a miracle. And Moshe splits the sea. And the people say, wow, like he came and he walked and he split the sea. And what else did he do? He did all these other miracles prior. He took the staff and threw it on the ground and turned it into a serpent. He stuck his hand in it turned and turned all white. He turned the water into blood. He brought us manna. There's a lot of amazing miracles. And you know what? At the splitting of the sea, they believed him. And that's the second level of belief, that kind of a higher level of belief. There's a miracle there. But even a miracle, says the Rambam, no matter how fantastic it is, and it is pretty fantastic to turn all the water into blood and split the sea, it's pretty fantastic, and everyone's privy to it, but there's always a kernel, a little shred of doubt. No matter how grandiose a miracle it is, people are still kind of questioning, is it real? I don't know how he did it. Maybe he's David Copperfield. I don't know, I don't know what he did. Maybe he's got some sort of sorcery or some sort of black, black magic. I don't know what it is. But maybe, just maybe, 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 it's not really from God. Maybe he's a, maybe he really is a fraud, a very talented charlatan, but he's still a snake oil salesman nonetheless. At Sinai, Moshe, in the eyes of the Jews, in the eyes of the skeptics, is going to be upgraded to the highest level of faith. Vigam becha ya'aminu le'olam. In you they will forever believe. Eternal faith. Faith that is rock solid, that is incontrovertible. Why? Says the verse. Behold, I will come to you in the thickness of the cloud. So that the nation will hear when I speak to you. God tells Moshe. The objective of Sinai is for the people not to believe Moshe on Moshe's claim, or on Moshe's action, but for themselves to participate in your prophecy. When a person experiences something themselves, they believe it not because someone else told them to believe it, but because they themselves experienced it with their own ears and their own eyes. Says Maimonides. This is based upon... Uh, the verses. At Sinai, the people themselves, and you look at the verses, by the way, the, the, the movies do a bad job of this. The movies portray it as if Moshe himself is having experience with God. Read the verses. The whole ha'am, the entire nation is seeing it. The entire nation is participating in it. God spoke to Moshe. Va'anu shomim, and we hear, Moshe, Moshe, lech emor lahem kach v'kach. The people were able to participate and hear in to Moshe's prophecy and that, says Maimonides, is not just even a miracle. So what's a miracle? I do a miracle. I do, I do magic, right? I split the sea, right? So that's very compelling evidence. But it's still evidence, right? 
when I let's say let's say there's a jury here, right? I'm trying to show the jury something. I'm trying to make a point. I could do a miracle. It's fantastic evidence, but it's never going to be as strong as if the jury themselves were privy to the event. So let's say there's a murder case, right? I could bring all the evidence in the world, and that's great. It's good proof. But the best proof is if the entire jury themselves saw the murder, then they don't need evidence at all. The whole purpose of evidence is for me, I know something, I want to make you believe it. But if you already believe it because you saw it, I don't need to, I don't need to convince you. You're already convinced. My money compares this. It's, it's a, it's a subtle point, but I think it's an astonishingly profound one. He compares it exactly to testimony. What is the difference between the witnesses themselves versus the court or the jury? Suppose me and someone else, in the Jewish court, you have to have two witnesses. Me and someone else see something. We go to the court and we provide testimony. Now, I know what I'm saying is true because I saw it. Do I, and, I, and, and they, they don't know. They have, I have, I have, they have to accept my testimony. But how do I know the person who's coming with me that they are telling the truth? Suppose you, if I knew I was – if I had my integrity on the line, I wouldn't want to participate with a another witness that may be lying, maybe a fraud. How do I know he's telling the truth? How do I know? Maybe he's lying. But if I was there with him, we experienced it together. I was with my friend, my, the, my co-witness, and we experienced the event together. I know that he's telling the truth because I saw him there and he saw it as well. I'm not believing him based upon a claim. I don't need to have evidence presented to me that he experienced what he is claiming to have experienced. I was there with him. When Moshe is telling the people, I am a prophet, here's Torah, he wasn't saying, I'm a prophet, here's a miracle, I'll prove it to you. Yes, he did abundance of miracles and they believed him. But but Yaminul Olam believing forever is only when they were there with him. They were co-witnesses. They experienced the prophecy alongside him. And therefore, at Sinai, any claims of Moshe being a charlatan were vanquished. Because now the entire people experienced prophecy alongside Moshe. Therefore, forever they are convinced as witnesses who saw it themselves that Moshe is a legitimate prophecy. Thus, Sinai, indeed, it's not about the Ten Commandments. Yes, of course, there's a lot of meaning behind the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments really are a synopsis, a condensed version of all of Torah. You look at Ten Commandments, you can break it down to ten different categories. Sure. But Ten Commandments themselves, the content of the prophecy is not really the objective. God can give us mitzvahs any way he wants. We've, we had mitzvahs before that. We got mitzvahs after that. It's not about the content. It's about the method of delivery. God speaks to Moshe, but speaks to Moshe and to us, the entire nation hears. Therefore, we are witnesses to Moshe's prophecy. It's the highest level of prophecy, and we can never question that forever, and we perpetuate that to our descendants. There's a mitzvah brought down in the book of Deuteronomy to remember Sinai. And there's an essay, I don't want to read the whole essay, but there's an essay from Nachmanides, not Maimonides, who brings out this point. 
The objective of Sinai was to establish Moshe's credentials to make him a verified prophet. And therefore, all of Torah, everything hinges upon Sinai because Sinai was the moment when we saw and we heard and we experienced alongside Moshe, we became witnesses to his claim of prophecy. It's not even a claim. There's no need to present evidence. And therefore, we know that the Torah that we have came from God because Moshe gave it to us and Moshe is a verified prophet. Let's go back to to chapter 3 of Exodus. So what happens? Moshe says, he starts his list of problems, list of of objections. And he tells God, well, I'm not worthy. They're not worthy. The first thing that God tells him, what's going to be the sign, verse 12, that I sent you? When you take the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. The first thing that God tells Moshe, Moshe, you're going to be a prophet? I want you to know you're not going to be relegated to the lower levels of prophecy where you still need to bring evidence to it. You're not going to be someone who's going to have to do miracles to prove to a recalcitrant recipient that you are legit. No, right away, the first thing God tells him, Sinai. Sinai will happen, i.e., I will make sure that the prophecy claim that you have is not going to be one that needs to be substantiated by evidence. Rather, it's going to be one that's to be experienced by everyone else. Now, Moshe tells God in in, in the third objection, he says, well, what if they don't believe me? What he's asking there is what if they don't believe me beforehand? Sinai is when we leave. At when we leave, of course, we're going to have this momentous experience at Sinai, revelation, national revelation, national prophecy, everyone's co-witnesses together. That's great. What about before that? So God says, oh, I'm going to give you all these miracles. You throw the staff on the floor, you stick your hand in your bosom. And if they don't believe you on the first, they'll believe you on the last. So we had asked previously, well, if there's a reason not to believe them in the first, why does that reason not apply in the last? If there's a reason not to believe him when Moshe throws the staff on the ground and turns it into a serpent, why is that reason nullified? Why is it obviated when Moshe sticks his hand into his chest? One of the commentaries explains this is what Maimonides is bringing the point. This is exactly his point. It doesn't say, look very critically here, it shall be if they do not believe you and do not heed to the voice of the first sign, they will believe the voice of the latter sign. It doesn't say of the second sign. It says of the latter sign. Says Maimonides, which latter sign is this? Says Maimonides, when it says this latter sign, it's not referring to sticking your hand into your chest. It's referring to the latter, the last sign, which is Sinai. And there is a qualitative difference. It's not just one's this kind of trick and one's that kind of trick. Even if it's miraculous, it's still something you have to prove to someone else. They can't convince someone else that they experienced prophecy. And that's exactly the point, because the Egyptians themselves could do all kinds of magic. And we see in the, in the story with the, with the ten, ten plagues, every time Moshe does something, he wows everyone, they say, no big deal, everyone could do that, any school child could do that. And that's why the people themselves were inclined to not believe sorcery, or miracles even, because it could be sorcery. God says, no, no, if they don't believe you to the first signs, the signs based upon miracles, 
they will certainly, surely believe you on the signs based upon witness testimony at Sinai. It doesn't mean the one that, it doesn't mean sticking your hand in. It means, it means the last one, the thing that's going to happen all at the end after sign, after they leave at Sinai. And that was the whole back and forth. Like the Ramam, what he does is, he actually shows the backstory of their argument. The whole argument is really based upon what is this pro- process going to be like? Is it going to be this kind of prophecy, that kind of prophecy? And Moshe is very wary to not just be another guy making a claim based upon maybe questionable evidence that he is a prophet. So this really opens a door to a lot of kind of bizarre or at least on the surface strange principles of Jewish faith. For example, Maimonides labels Moshe, uh, Moshe is called the greatest of the prophets. Moshe is called the father, Av Hanavim. Why is Moshe called the father of the prophets? He wasn't the first. Abraham was his great, 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 great grandfather. Says the Rabbim like this. Suppose you were Abraham. Abraham comes to the Jews and says to them, I'm a prophet. You know what we tell him? Prove it. That's the logical response. Prove it. And you know what? Maybe he could, maybe he couldn't. But even if he could, he wouldn't, he didn't prove it with such an, such a proof, such a highest level of proof, the highest level of faith, faith forever. He would maybe prove it with a miracle. And you know what? Even then, there'll be some doubt. So how do we know that Abraham's a real prophet? He didn't tell it to us. The only reason why we know that Abraham's a prophet is because Moshe told us that he's a prophet. So Moshe is the father of all prophets, even the, the prophets that preceded him, even his great-great-great-grandfather Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They indeed chronologically, chronologically came before him, but the only reason why we believe them or we believe their claim of prophecy is because Moshe told us and we believe everything Moshe says because Moshe is a verified prophet on the highest degree. And even future prophets... Ezekiel comes. How does Ezekiel prove his prophecy? So Maimonides describes there is a, a vetting process for prophecies. And that's the laws. You have to vet the prophet. You have to question them. You have to interrogate them. You have to make sure you don't have any frauds. Well, how do we know that maybe there is a fraud? How do we know? Maybe someone was able to cheat. Says Maimonides, Moshe is the father of all prophets, those that preceded him, those that came afterwards. Why? Because Moshe, we know, is a verified prophet with the highest level. Therefore, the ones that happened prior, he tells us they're a prophet, we believe him. That's enough for us. And even the ones that come later, Moshe told us, what are the guidelines? What's the vetting process? And therefore, he tells us, believe him. That's the law. We follow what Moshe tells us. Tells us. Also, there is an entire realm of monotheistic religions that espouse replacement theology. Which means that none of them are questioning the legitimacy of Moshe or Moshe's prophecy or the Torah. What they're saying is that Moshe and the Torah and even the Jewish people are replaced. So what Paul does is Paul abrogates the law. He says, he doesn't say the law was never valid. It's not valid anymore, he says. The law was valid, but I'm going to tell you the way it is now. Comes along uh, 600 years, 500 years later, Muhammad comes along and he does kind of the same thing. Moshe's a prophet, sure. Ibrahim is a prophet. JC is a prophet. Everyone's a prophet. But Muhammad Rasul Allah, right? Muhammad's the last prophet. You were right, but now we're updating it. 
I mean, so they're not questioning. And no, no, of course that was true. But Mani points out a, a critical point. Suppose some future prophet comes and let's assume it's a Jewish prophet, right? It's, suppose Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah, they show up and they say, there's a mitzvah in the Torah that we're going to expunge. Moshe gave us a mitzvah and we're saying goodbye to it. And I'm a, I'm a prophet after all. Says the Rambam, logically speaking, we know they're false prophets. Why? Because Moshe, well, he was the highest level of proof for a prophecy. It was a prophecy that was experienced with everyone. And therefore, the only reason why we believe Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or anyone that comes afterwards is because Moshe told us, believe someone, even if they submit a lower level of evidence. Ezekiel doesn't need to have Sinai 2.0 to be believed. They have to be believed by doing miracles, so to speak. It's evidence. But, but Moshe tells us that's how you, you believe them like that. It's okay. But the only reason why I believe is not because it's logical for us to believe you. There's no way for us to not believe you. It's because Moshe told us to believe you. So if someone whose entire claim is based upon the fact that Moshe told us that this is true, and Moshe is a real prophet, but he comes to undermine Moshe himself, then obviously he's not a real, he's not legit. Because the entire, if the entire reason why we would believe him is the reason why we wouldn't believe them, we don't believe him. This is the rules of prophecy. And whoever fits, it, fits into this is believed. Now, not because we know that there's this highest level of evidence, there's Sinai 2.0 to prove that Ezekiel's a prophet. No. Ezekiel does miracles. He does, I would say, the belief in Ezekiel of chapter 14. He does amazing things. And wow, he must be a prophet, right? Sure. But even that, if you want to uproot the prophecy of Moshe, you have to have at least the same claim to prophecy that he had. You would have to convene Sinai 2.0 and get a million uh, or so people to participate in your prophecy alongside you. And unless you do that, your claim is baseless. And that's a, it's, an, it's an interesting point. Maman is essentially saying that the argument of anyone who wants to tamper, tinker, uh, or alter the religion that Moshe gave us, well, it, unless they're able to equal him in the claim that he has to being a prophet, Sinai 2.0, then it's illogical for us uh, to accept that. I want to add another point here, all the way in Deuteronomy. It's a very critical verse in Deuteronomy, which essentially closes the arguments. Because Deuteronomy, by the way, is full of a lot of predictions. There's a lot of things looking to the future because Deuteronomy is written immediately prior to the death of Moshe, within a year, a few months. And it's Moshe preparing the Jewish people to go into Israel. Moshe, of course, dies on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, outside of Canaan, outside of the borders of Israel. And Deuteronomy is him preparing them for it. He's given his last speech and testimony, for example. His last will and testimony is the first four sections of Deuteronomy. It's one uninterrupted speech. It's one uninterrupted speech of Moshe. But look what he says here in chapter 4, verse 32. He presents a challenge. Inquire now 
regarding the early days that preceded you from the day when God created man and earth from one end of the heaven to the other end of the heaven. He's saying, I want you to investigate anywhere in the world at any time in history the following. Has there ever been anything like this? This is talking about Sinai, by the way. Moshe is presenting a bold challenge. Has there ever been anywhere in the world, any time in history, anything like this great thing? Or has anything like it been heard? Has a people ever heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard and survived? What Moshe is telling them with the Torah is ensconcing for eternity is that there will never be Sinai 2.0. There will never be an, an episode where God will speak to an entire nation. And he says, go, go ahead, look. Tell me, is there any, any, anywhere, any other claim? He's not saying that it's never happened. There won't even be a claim. Had there, how will it ever be heard this claim, God speaking to a nation that they survive? What this means, and I want this is a little bit of a side point, but suppose we want to posit that the Torah was written either by a, a collaboration of individuals, not Moshe, or it was written over time, like the documentary hypothesis was merged together by some very skillful redactor. Suppose, and of course that presents problems, how do you get people to believe they saw, they, they saw something they didn't see, right? That's, that's the major logical problem with that claim. But this verse itself would show to me that these hypothetical authors of the Torah are insane. Why? Because they're saying they know that they fabricated Sinai. If it never happened, then they made it up. And they somehow managed to hoodwink the nation to believing it. But they, if they're the ones who made it up and were able to integrate it into a nation, get to get people to believe it, obviously they know it can be done. Why then would they put this bold claim, show me someone else who does this? Well, if you did it, someone else could do it as well. So obviously those people would not put that in because that severely undermines their claim by saying something that they know is possible is impossible. And the reason why it is because it is impossible. It's impossible, and this is what my back to Maimonides' critical point, it's impossible to convince a nation that they saw something they didn't see. It's not me going to the jury and trying to convince them something that I saw. That's all the other prophets. And even Jewish prophets. Sure, we might believe them. Sure. But Moshe's prophecy and the kickstart of our religion was not that the jury has to hear testimony from someone else. It's when the jury themselves experience what the witnesses experience. They experience prophecy alongside Moshe. And that is something that is impossible to fabricate. And there's no way to get that story started if you wanted to falsify it. And therefore, indeed, the claim, the verse says, chapter 19, verse 9, what is Sinai all about and why is it important? What's the upcoming festival that we're going to celebrate Shavuos? Why is it so important? Because it proves for eternity. They will believe in Moshe forever because there's no way for any other possibility to be viable. And I think it's good for us, it's it's comforting uh, for us to know that when we 
you know, religion gets it gets a bad rap because religion is sometimes associated with people not questioning things and people just accepting dogma and just being uh, superstitious. And that, unfortunately, our religion gets lumped in with religions at large by saying that, you know, people just believe in it, they believe this, believe that, no basis, no evidence. But here we go. This is, this is our claim. Sinai is the founding of our religion. It's the punctuation of the Exodus. And we lay this claim before someone else. How is it possible to falsify the story? How is it possible? How do you convince a nation of millions that they experience prophecy? God talking to them. I would even, I would even downgrade this. Forget about prophecy. Even the miracles that Moshe did dwarf any other miracle. Suppose J.C. walked on water. Let's assume it's true. I'm even accepting that. Let's assume he turned the water into wine. Let's accept that it's true. Let's just accept that. What's more impressive? To walk on water once or to turn water into wine once or to orchestrate a miracle where manna, magical food, drops from heaven every single day and twice on Friday for a nation comprised of millions of people for 40 years. Think about how many meals that is. Nation of millions, three meals per day, or enough to subsist for one day, six times a week, seven if you count the double on Friday, for 40 years. Remember, they're eating this for the duration of the time. That's a miracle. That's a much greater miracle than turning water. Sure, yeah. even, even the miracles that Moshe did, and this was not, and the book, by the way, that claims these miracles was given to the same people that experienced them. So it says in the book. So it's just, and I've never heard an answer. I'm trying to find someone who can explain how this can be falsified. How do I give a book to someone that says they ate manna for 40 years and they saw Sinai and they experienced the miracles and they saw all the miracles of Egypt? And I give them the book. And I write in the book, I'm giving you the book. It says it very clearly in the book. And then they say, sure, I'll do this. I'll observe all the laws. But it's all false. How does that work? It's a great mystery. But I think it's, it's good comforting to know that our claim, our religion, our Torah is true. And it's backed by copious, incontrovertible, rock-solid evidence. And that's why with the upcoming festival that we really celebrate and re-experience this, it's important for us to kind of take a moment and think about that and, and be happy and be glad and be joyous that we have an opportunity to access God's Torah. It's, it's amazing what we're claiming. Creator of heaven and earth, of all the galaxies and all the cosmos, of the trillions and trillions of stars and trillions and trillions of cells in your body and the trillions of species in the planet – that same entity, he gives you his thoughts and his way to maximize life and pleasure. And he gives you in a book that's readable and translated into English. Like, how awesome is that? Just the claim. Wouldn't you want to read the book and see what it says? Like, the manufacturer's guide to properly utilize life. The creator of lifetime and space and humans and souls giving us a book, a manual, how to do it. 
And if, uh, unfortunately, we we grew we we live in a society and culture that kind of just takes that oh that's lore that's folklore that's legends. But I I I try to present Maimonides' argument. One of the arguments of the veracity of the Torah. I actually have, if you're interested, I have a whole podcast channel called Torah 101 dedicated to actually going through all the evidence supporting the veracity of the Torah. And I make the claim again and again, if you have any answers, if you want to come and argue the other side, I'm welcoming it. I want to hear what you have to say. This is just, you look at some of the predictions, for example, you know, Sinai, that's amazing, right? But just predictions that we experience today. Like, you know, we grew up in uh, in a world that Israel as a state harboring Jews is a reality. But for 2,000 years, the Jews were everywhere but Israel. You know, we were in Babylon for a 1,000 years. We were in every place in Europe, North Africa, and really everywhere on the planet. And suddenly, almost overnight, the majority of Jews are back in Israel. And you look what the Torah says. That's going to happen. I'm going to scatter you throughout the land. And there you'll be small in number. You'll be hated. True, true. And you're going to come back to the land. And that's <coughs> predicted clearly in the Torah. And we live like we live in the same centuries and decades that this is actually happening. And it's right there before us. And it's never happened anywhere else in history. It's never, never another nation. Well, okay, just to be fair, it's happened twice in history. But both to us. <laughs> both times to us. We were sent to Babylon in the 5th century before the Common Era, and we came back with Ezra, and progressively we got stronger in Israel. We were kicked out of Israel, first out of Judea by the Romans in the 1st and 2nd century. And then uh, once the Byzantines came around, we really had a hard time in Israel. We basically left for about five, 600 years before there was a trickling in back to Israel. But then we came in a huge force in the 19th and, of course, the 20th century. But even 1948, when the state's founded, there's 600,000 Jews in Israel. It's not a huge number. And now there's 6 million Jews. But the biggest venue of Jews in the world is Israel. If I told you that 200 years ago, you'd put me in the aforementioned institution. But the Torah makes the prediction, and wow, it's happened. Like, it's just eye-opening. You have an ancient book that our nation has steadfastly claimed it's from God and we have testimony father to son and parent to child and teacher to student to generation to generation. We have a very rich history and it's all centralized around the claim that we have Torah from God. And on the holiday of Shavuos, we have an opportunity to celebrate that and to think about that and to feel joyous about it and to feel a little terrified about that. Because it's a lot easier for someone to say, I'm culturally Jewish, and I'm very happily Jewish, I'm Jewish in my heart, I, you know, we, we have a Seder, like that's very easy. But when someone is confronted with evidence that says, wow, we're actually right, and we actually have this claim, and it's just powerful, and it's logical, and it's, and it's right there, uh, that's a little terrifying. That's, that's okay. You know, if you're a little terrified, that's, that's good. That, that, that's, that's life, you know. Life is we're conf- we're confronted with our challenges, and that's that's what free will is about. <laughs> life is terrifying, but I think it's also gratifying and rewarding and heartening to know that it's not all been for naught. I always say that you look at the people that very much want to discount the Jews and the Jews' special place in history. Uh, the people that like 
that like uh, promulgating, for example, the documentary hypothesis, which is the name given to the theory that the Torah is made up. It's a, it's a work of fiction. And I always say to those people, what about the millions of Jews who gave up their life because they believe this is true? And they said, we're not going to convert and we're not going to, we're going to stand by our principles because we believe it's from God. How cruel is it for someone to say all their suffering and all their sacrifice was for naught? The whole Jewish experiments, it's all a bunch of fiction. Because as, as soon as you say the Torah is a book of legends, Judaism, the Jewish nation, and Jewish history crumbles. Because it's, it's all a bit of farce. It's all some fiction that was spun. But when we say, yes, Torah is true, and yes, there's evidence, and yes, our history is real, and it's powerful, and it's, and it's inspiring, and it's meaningful, and, li- and it's purposeful, and the Torah is, is true, and it's binding, and that's terrifying, and I'm trying to improve as, 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 every day to try to, to try to take its lessons and impart them into myself, first of all, and then my life and my family, and to enrich myself. I think that's a very good place to be. So everyone have a wonderful, happy Shavuos. And, um, and thank you all for listening.